When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ho, 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 hello, and welcome to Bar Humbug, the Christmas movie podcast that thoroughly approves of action Santas and wonders why we're still waiting for the night the reindeer died. I'm your host, Helen O'Hara, and I am delighted to be here today talking about Violent Night. This is the new film that sees David Harbour's actual Santa uh, struggling with disillusionment with the world, but all that changes one night when he's basically in a drunken stupor upstairs in the middle of his rounds, when the house that he's in is broken into by a gang of thieves led by a guy codenamed Scrooge, played by John Leguizamo. Well, there's only one thing for it. Santa has to step into action and deliver a festive beatdown in order to protect a small and innocent child. It's all directed by Tommy Workola, and frankly, it's bags of fun. So we are going to be getting into spoilerific detail on this. So if you haven't seen Violet Night, please do go away and watch it and come back to us. But I'm delighted to be joined today to talk about it by an old friend and an amazing author and podcaster. She most recently published, I think it's your eighth book, Her Fierce Creatures, which is the epic conclusion to the Supernatural Sisters saga. And she just won an Augie as well for The Phantom Never Dies, her podcast about the Phantom. Frankly, uh, she's wildly overqualified to be here. Please welcome Maria Lewis. (laughs) I feel like I'm perfectly adequately qualified to be here, but thank you. For gassing me up in the tradition yeah. of Christmas. That's the way it goes. I have to, t- to tell everybody who's who's listening that we are actually dressed like the heterosexual white couple mm-hmm. on the cover mm-hmm. of a Hallmark movie. <laughs> I'm in a bright red jumper and Maria is in these fantastic forest green piped pajamas. They're just yes. delightful. So yeah, all we need is like a really generic title and we are set for starting. We're good to go. And like minor green satin. So it's like, you know, how there has to be one who's kind of slutty in the Hallmark relationship and that would be me. So I can (laughs) be the slutty, ethnically ambiguous one. And I'm drinking spiced ginger beer, which is like the Australian slash New Zealand delicacy of choice for this time of year because it's hot here during Christmas or during festive season, I guess. So we're always trying to find something that's like, cooling and this Best is of you know it tastes yeah. the way Christmas feels I am so jealous because I'm a big fan of Bundaberg, Bundaberg ginger beer at the best of times but the idea of spiced Bundaberg is just blowing oh my, my mind you post about it every year and don't bring me any <laughs> like what's up with that number one how the fuck would I get it to the UK but I will say <laughs> I was very surprised the last time I was in LA in July they were selling Bundaberg at they like, have it there now yeah cool coffee it's shops nuts yeah. And not not just like the regular Bundaberg, diet ginger beer, Bundaberg ginger beer, because for like the girlies who know, know, but the Bundaberg ginger beer is, is really good. The diet ginger beer is the one, like that's the one that has really? the better taste. Yeah, it's more gingery. And so if that's what you're there for, they also do an amazing lemon, lime and bitters. They just, <gasps> oh man, anything Bundaberg family is amazing, but the spice ginger beer in particular is so good. I'll never forget, they started selling it 
definitely about 15 years ago. Like I feel really solid with that timeline because I remember I was working as a journal at this newspaper at the time and like it would, it could only ever get as far as Queensland. So Bundaberg is a place in Queensland. It's like a state, right? And the spiced ginger beer at Christmas would sell out so quickly that it never made it out of the state. No. And so it was this thing every year. I was like, and I remember because I, I moved states to go and work at a different newspaper and I would be spewing because I knew it was like, fuck, we're never going to be able to get the spiced ginger beer because it never made it that far. <laughs> and now it's the thing. Now they start selling it in crates. It always sells out. It's just like people are obsessed with it. And it is like genuinely delicious the way people feel about pumpkin spice stuff during like halloween season in the u.s is how i feel like australians and new zealanders feel about spiced ginger beer because it's like refreshing and cooling but still it feels festive and special and yeah so if you're just tuning in this is a bundaberg spoiler special at this point um (laughs) but literally sponsor me i have written their drinks (laughs) into my books Fucking sponsor me. Let's go. No <laughs> free ads, but like, give me some ads. Well, we should talk about your book as we go, but um, we should talk about Violent Night a little bit though, as we as we go, because I don't know how I'm meant to feel about Santa anymore. Between, first of all, we had <laughs> Kurt Russell with that magnificent beard, right? Now we've got, next year, we're going to have J.K. Simmons all like buffed up as oh like super God. hench Santa. And in the middle, we have David Harbour somehow making a man bun seem like a hot mm. idea. How does a person even do that? And what is happening to the world? I'm so glad you brought up the J.K. Simmons thing because I just saw it on The Rock's Instagram and I was just like, oh my God, like what the, what tomfoolery? How did the Pacifica Nation get involved in this? Like every year, actually, I'll tell you what, I do really like it because I think it's, I I love there being more films to the canon. Like Mm -hmm. there being things that can be, I feel like Christmas films largely are defined in two categories and that's romance and family. And so I love stuff like this because it expands the possibilities of what a Christmas film can be. Obviously there's like seasonal horror films, but that's really like a sub sub genre. And it really feels like the action, action festive film is Mm -hmm. bubbling up or like having a little bit of a moment. It's happening every year. There's at least two to three. And I think Violent Night, as I was watching it, I was really intrigued um, because I was in a cinema full of 14-year-old boys, which is for sure not my preference. (laughs) But I was, like, chuckling along and, like, laughing at jokes, which I don't think they got, and that's, like, peace out, no no big deal. But I was really curious because as I was watching it, I was like, this feels like the ideal streaming movie. Like, this feels like something that a streaming service would want to make because it's the kind of thing the family puts on whenever, or, you know, whatever, however you celebrate Christmas, your orphans Christmas, family Christmas, whatever. They put on on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day and watch, and it's the thing after the kids have gone to bed or the cousins have gone to bed. And I thought it was intriguing going a theatrical route with this, more than any of these other sort of Christmas movies because it just seemed like such a no-brainer. And I was looking at the box office and it's done, like, you know, really quite well. Yeah. And I was yeah. just like, well, fuck. I guess people like want to go out and have a good time. And I was very curious about what their release window is. Like how soon will this quickly shift to being available on demand, on streaming, et cetera, et cetera. Because I, I don't know, we're like, we've only got a few weeks left to go, but I would get yeah. it on there fast. I don't, I don't know. I mean, they might do the the sort of the old school thing and hold it till next year at this point because it's still making money in cinemas, you know? And it is yeah. like, 
I also saw it in the cinema, thankfully not entirely full of teenagers. Um, <laughs> but it, like, it's a great cinema experience. Like mm. the cackling at some of the stuff cackling. in this was yeah. was just glorious. Um, some of the kills I thought were absolutely inspired. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, when he sees the hammer and picks up the hammer, fantastic. But so so much of the stuff before that, death by Christmas tree star. I'm that so was, I, I was legitimately about to say that was the death where I was just, it was where the Tommy Wakola jumped out, right? Because I think um, there are a lot of things that he's known for as a filmmaker, but it, it, the, the, the things that I guess maybe he's most known for, like horror and comedy, the line and the balance between the two. And my favourite parts of this movie were the Tommy Wakola parts. And the parts I didn't like so much were the talkie-talkie here or talkie-talkie there or fucking, oh, this person's going to have a fucking emotional backstory. I'm like, skip let's have more stars and eyes and it was the Tommy Wakola stuff which I really liked because if you're a fan of not just Dead Snow but Kill Bulljo I guess is like the thing that a lot of he got on a lot of film buffs radar but um I particularly really loved I'm I'm the one who loved Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters I'm a big fan I'm it I'm it anything for Gemma Arterton but I actually thought the world building and that was really fun and um and I also love like I know people get really fucking hung up on the historical like supernaturalness of it all. And I'm like, yeah, it's like a fucking supernatural riff on Hansel and Gretel, which is made up anyway. So like, why not have them in corset with wooden machine guns? And like one of them gets diabetes from being fed too much sugar by the witch as a kid. Like, why not? Like what's to say you can't, but I also really loved a film that, um, Tommy McCullough directed, didn't write, which was called What Happened to Monday with Numi Rapace mm, yep. with, and Willem Dafoe um, and Glenn Close. And I thought it was genuinely absolutely fucking brilliant. And just I really love him as a visual storyteller. And so something like this really felt right within his wheelhouse, the, the violence of it, the humour of it, the gore of it, the action sequences are just like, genuinely so so wonderful and it was just like so nice I'm like oh man I haven't thought about Tommy Apollo in a while but it was so nice to see somebody still being exactly who they are <laughs> does that make sense <laughs> very like much it's, so it's like which crimes of the future and you're like oh Cronenberg's still fucked like that's cool <laughs> that's cool David Lynch cooked nothing makes sense like those just little moments where it's so so rare that filmmakers get to stay distinctly who they are in this business for various reasons but this was like really refreshing to me even in particular the the two women um sugar cane and something else that are in the henchmen henchwoman group mm-hmm. and those two female characters are such tommy wakola characters yeah like i don't know quite how to explain it but there's always at least like two to three henchwomen in his films were just fucking sick. Like they're so cool. They mightn't have a lot of dialogue, but they're bringing 80% of everything else. And the second that she turned around and she had the candy cane headband on and like a dark lipstick, I was like, oh, fuck you. Here we go. Here we go. (laughs) I mean, it was not, it was, it's right. Okay. I, I loved the film. I had such a good time with it. So much of the story is derivative of so many other things, but you know, I, I love that. I mean, you immediately spot exactly who the terrorists are walking around the house or the, the, the robbers are walking around the house at the beginning. But then, we, you know, we go into a bit of Die Hard. We go into a bit of Bad Wonderful Santa at the very die beginning. Hard Wonderful Die Hard yes. We go into Home Alone. We go into Die Hard 2. 
A mm-hmm. uh, big Die mm-hmm. Hard 2 twist there at the end. We yeah. go into freaking Peter Pan and Tinkerbell <laughs> at the very end. So, so many of the like plot points of this are lifted from other things. And I could not have cared less. Yeah. <laughs> no, maybe, I the, mean, maybe the Die Hard 2 one. Like that was a bit like, oh, come on. There's got to be a better way to do that. Well, here's the thing. If I think if you're making a festive movie... You don't get to make it in a vacuum. It has to, in some way, acknowledge all the things that have come before. And you can either pick and choose what those things are or you can love actually it, you know what I mean, where you're making a specific named reference to a thing. And it's just impossible to do. I think it's the same as if you're doing a slasher these days, right, that there has to be some kind of wink or if you're doing a conventional slasher, right, where there's not, uh, let's say, a barbarian-esque twist or something, there has to be some acknowledgement of where it sits within the genre. Anything that's very specific, like this sub genre here, there has to be an acknowledgement of what's come before. And there was a, <laughs> there's a really a line that made me cackle and the 14 year old boys didn't laugh um, where he's re- Santa's reaching into his sack and he's like trying to get presents to like throw. Right. Which is a very funny moment pulled from many different action movies that have done similar versions of that. But he pulls a, a, a present out of the out of the sack and he's like, oh, Die Hard again? And it was just like the, there's overt named Die Hard references, but then there's also the assembling of a crew, the Hans Gruber-esque-ness of the crew, the unvolting of the safe. All of that sort of stuff is, is like micro and macro reference to the thing. And I'm like, cool, sick. I'm watching a Christmas movie. Why not acknowledge them? I really loved... Um, I don't know if you've seen, oh, I mean, you have a, a whole fucking podcast about Christmas movies. I'm sure you have. The Night Before with um, Joseph Gordon. Yes, yes, yes. And Anthony. Okay. One of my favorite Christmas films. And one of the reasons I love it so much is I feel like it does something specific and original, right? That's distinct enough to that core group, but is similar to all the broader themes of Christmas films in one capacity or the other, which is about coming together and finding family, whether that's found family or biological family or whatever. But throughout that film, they spend lots of little moments acknowledging other Christmas films or acknowledging mm-hmm. other family-orientated stuff. There's a scene where they're playing <laughs> Kanye West's Runaway on a giant piano in the shop. And I'm like, okay, yeah. everybody knows what that's referencing and that's wonderful and it's like, Yes, something familiar that I know, but give me a spin on it and give me a spin on it for a reason. And I really love that. Absolutely. And and I think I think uh, there, there are good reasons for this one. I, I'm amazed that it's taken this long. You know, we've had the sort of Black Christmas kind of Santa slasher movie, obviously, way back in the day. We've had, uh, most recently this Christmas, a robot Santa going rogue and killing a bunch of people in Christmas, Bloody Christmas. There have been uh, robot alien Santas in Doctor Who. There, there's been all sorts of like, evil people dressed up as Santa. What we haven't had is actual Santa going less jolly old Saint Nick and more jolly old John Wick. And that feels like a real (laughs) delightful turn to me because let's use our magical powers for kicking ass and taking names. And also just the constant refrain of like a magical sack. How does it work? I don't know how it works, man. And like, how do the reindeers fly? I don't know how they work. Like, let's just not fucking get into the weeds. There's magical reindeers and the magical sack. And like, do we need an explanation for it? Like, maybe, I don't know. I don't really need one. And I loved that. But I also loved, (laughs) I'm a big Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula girly. Oh yeah. Big fan, big fan. 
happy, what is it, 25th anniversary? No, 30th anniversary to that bad boy. I know, such a great film. But the flashbacks to, and we're not going to like specifically say what they are, so no spoilers if you haven't seen it, but there's a lot of flashbacks to Santa Claus's origin story that were very like dramatic and played dramatically and serious and gory, but also kind of funny because I felt like that was a little homage to that sort of opening 10 minute montage where you have Vlad the Impaler, you know, impaling his way through world color. And I was just like, this is, this is funny and cool and a different riff and it's something different I've seen before. And like, yes, okay. You have, you still have your magical sack and your reindeers and all that shit. And just the explaining it away. I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. Cool. Get that out of the way. Fine. But having him have a bloody backstory, not only does that make sense in the context of this being a diehard meets fuck, I don't know, diehard John Wick magical version with, <laughs> but it is also something interesting and layered to that character. You know, like yeah. how do you go from being a symbol of death and doom essentially to something that brings inspires hope and joy and love for children and, and all they over. Didn't, and they didn't quite explain it. They showed that was his origin, but they didn't actually yes. show the in-between stage. You know, this is not the Santa Claus, the movie I was driving my sled through, you know, Scandinavia once and then what do you know, I became a Santa. You got like, like, bitten by a reindeer and turned into a wear <laughs> Santa or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's none of that. There's just, I was once this, now I'm that. What are you going to do? Hey, you know, it's. <laughs> no, I really appreciated that. I'm a, which is surprising because I'm a big world building girly. Like I love build those worlds and have those answers for me. Even if, you know, it's icebergging, right? You only see like 10 or 20% of it on the surface and everything else is like built in and weaved in. But that might be possibly because they want to do, you know, other versions of this. There's so many possibilities sequel wise that if this was successful enough, there you go. You've got a built-in little franchise that you can keep, you know, tapping back into every year or every second year. And that also makes sense because the screenwriters are the Sonic and Sonic 2 guys, right? So they're familiar with IP and franchise building and all that kind of stuff and whether Tommy Wakollis stays on or not, like who could say. But it was actually kind of refreshing because it's like, yeah, this is – supposed to be respectfully quite fucking dumb (laughs) and we don't necessarily need a scientific answer for it and that Mm -hmm. is cool yeah and I hope I I I agree with you I I think there's absolutely room for a sequel there I think that's probably on somebody's radar right now and probably somebody's brainstorming even as we speak but I hope they don't over explain things you know you kind of you want the Empire Strikes Back you don't want Solo a Star Wars story filling in every single gap that has ever existed um even stuff that just doesn't need to be explained. You know, I mean, God, there's fun stuff in that film, but Jesus Christ, I don't need to know how he got his name. It's really (laughs) stupid. Hello, I'm Hannah Flint from The First Film Club, a film podcast series dedicated to established and emerging talent, both in front of and behind the camera, and the feature debuts that launched their careers. From the new drama Mass to the cult classic Heathers, Each episode is dedicated to a film, a guest, and the the behind-the-scenes stories, memories, and advice from their time on set. Find us, The First Film Club, wherever you listen to your stripped media podcasts. Come join the club. I was also, at one point, I genuinely thought they were going to Christmas Chronicles 2 it, Mm. because there were so many references to Mrs. Claus. Like, she is mentioned... 
at least four times. And I was like, is there going to be a sort of like mid-credit cameo? And she's like, I don't know. I mean, I'm just going to pick somebody's work with before and say Winona Ryder. But like, honestly, I was going to say this franchise, Christie. That would be oh my God. The perfect. <gasps> right. Because I was thinking of, I was thinking size wise and like this idea yes. of like having two like tall, statuesque, big performers in there. And I thought she would be, Gwendolyn Christie would be my vote. Oh my, you have, you've just preemptively <laughs> broken my heart because when they announce Violet Night 2 and it isn't Gwendolyn Christie, <laughs> I am going to be so upset now. Oh man, that would isn't be amazing. I, well, because I was thinking about it in the context of I'm reading this um, romance novel at the moment that's really great, but the two main heroines in it are both, uh, act, like they both play actors and essentially what is like a fictionalized Game of Thrones TV show. Anyway, they're both like six foot something, right? And their whole point is like that they're like part of their attraction is they're like they're the two tall, big, strong people. And I'm like, fuck, that's so hot. And then I was trying to think of like, okay, what's someone who can match like David Harbour's like no fucking around sort of energy and like his physicality? And Gwendolyn and Kristen would be a great choice. The book I was reading is um, Shipwrecked by Olivia Dade. It's like part of a part of a, a series of interlapping, overlapping characters. But just that you so rarely, especially when it comes to female performers, get to see women match the men's size. You know what I mean? It always has to be played like large and small, large and small, large and small. I'm like, yeah, just give me, give me Mrs. Claus. Like you want to feel it. <laughs> feel it in your bones. You do. And I mean, like, I think we should talk a bit more about like David Harbour as an actor because I mm. feel like he's... He's really fascinating. So I interviewed him for um, her magazine for Black Widow. Mm-hmm. And, you Which, know, and can I just say a yeah. film that I absolutely love? I know like the boys really got on the dicks about it, but like, fuck, honestly, one of my favorite films of Phase 4. Sorry to interrupt. Just want to say no, I no. love Black Widow. Agree, agree. But he is, he's a fascinating guy because he is really charming and easygoing and funny and self-deprecating and all of that stuff. He's also incredibly intellectual about acting mm-hmm. and apparently grew up in like a really experimental theatre environment and kind of comes from that background. So even in all those years where he kind of wasn't a known guy, but he was turning up in things and being good in them. You know that phase where he was playing a lot of FBI guys and cops and stuff? Yes, um, I was thinking specifically of A Walk Among the Tombstones. Exactly. Where he's, um, yeah, where he's fucking terrifying, but he's like essentially like, you know, he's part of a buff- like a Buffalo Bill double act, if you will. And you're like, yeah. oh, there's, oh, it was just that he was that guy. He was that guy. Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) Yeah, he was that guy for a really, really long time. But in between, like, doing those roles, he was basically on, you know, stage off, off Broadway, I think, doing, like, incredibly weird theatre. And I find that kind of blend fascinating. And I feel like it's something Mm. that maybe not all of his films have, like, leaned into yet. Um, And I kind of hope they do. But, like, because he does have the kind of brawler side and he has the size and the the, the sort of Mm. energy for that character, for this character, but I'd love to see a little bit more of that kind of depth to him in future. Maybe not in this series, if this is a franchise. Like, I don't know if we need yeah. too much depth here. But <laughs> Well, though, those were the bits, to be honest, that dragged for me. Like, there were a few scenes where he's back and forth in via walkie-talkie. You know, shout out to Home Alone, but shout out to every, like, 80s kid movie ever. And I needed one of those scenes rather than, mm. like, the four that we had. Uh, or, you know, and Max, too. But even though he's great in them and even though the the casting in this film is like truly genuinely really, really good. Like they basically cast 
two names in David and John and then everyone else they're going deep cuts. Like you really have to know or like know your shit to be able to recognize who these people are. But that was the kind of stuff I was like, yeah, he's really great and he's really imbuing this with a lot. And I think he does a lot of that as Hopper on Stranger Things Mm. because that show is so big and so much the summation of its parts. I think particularly the first few seasons, his performance really gets overlooked for how extraordinary it is and how emotional it is and how sad it is while still also being this wrecking ball that just forces the action onwards regardless of what's coming and I think that's um that's like an underrated skill and an undervalued sort of asset that he has to his his presence as a performer because I think the physicality is for sure a big part of it but it's also very fascinating to find someone who can bring the emotional vulnerability as well as like the physical invulnerability that's a duality you don't get to see a lot Yes, and it's a really fascinating one to watch. Even and and you can do it in a big stupid film as well as or you know big stupid TV show, frankly, like uh, Stranger Things, as well as you know in off off Broadway uh, experimental theater. What did you think about the rest of the cast? Because I thought it was a really fascinating mix. Because quite frankly, the moment you see Alex Hassel as as Jason, um, oh. the last time I saw him was as Ross in the Tragedy <laughs> of Macbeth, the Joel Cohen one. But like he has such an untrustworthy face, right? I mean, I say this with respect. I'm sure he's a lovely, you know, honest as the day is long kind of a guy. But like his face doesn't doesn't read that. And so when you see him standing there holding a bag, I honestly thought he was going to be among the terrorists. I thought it was a kind of start of the dark night. He's being picked up like the Joker uh, kind of moment. And, and they kind of almost framed it that way. So I was suspicious of him from the get go. But yeah, it's a it's a really interesting mix. I mean, Alexis Louder is his wife. Cam Gigonde as the idiot. Which oh one? Oh my god! Um, so Alexis was my fave because I loved her in Watchmen, and I also really love her in the originals. Now that mm. is a deep cut for any <laughs> <laughs> any CW girlies. But um, again, like I I really believe in wholeheartedly and earnestly loving things. But here's the deal. Those CW shows, and this is back in the day when they had 22 episodes a season rather Mm. than 12 to 14, it was a shit ton of work that people had to do and a lot of arcs and ridiculous storylines and sometimes really grounded ones that performers had to push through, right? And so many of the actors that came up through those shows are genuinely brilliant and genuinely good, and that's why those shows have this legacy. But in the originals in particular, there was just, just some incredible performance. Like Daniel Gillies, I think, is amazing. Joseph Morgan. It, it's just nuts. But yeah. I really love him. But also, Cam, how did you say his name? Apparently, you say I, I believe it's Jugonde. Okay. Jugonde makes more sense because I was always like, Giganaut? <laughs> <laughs> Cam Giganaut? I've interviewed a few times. Actually, when we first met, um, That's you- right. We we met yeah. at a Twilight event. We met at a Twilight press conference. Yes. We got to know each other, waiting around yes. for hours. Now, he people. wasn't on that press conference, but he was there promoting something else, which I want to say was maybe Priest, but I cannot be sure on the timeline on that. But he, he's always on the Comic-Con circuit, but is someone I've interviewed a few times over the years and was like one of those sort of people tw- post-Twilight where there's like, is this person going to happen, you know? He popped mm-hmm. up in Burlesque. He popped up in Priest. He popped up in a few other bits of bobs. I haven't seen him around for a while, even though he's been cons- steadily and consistently working. I just haven't seen him in stuff that I have watched. But I got to say, 
I've never seen him in a comedic role and he was genuinely really funny, genuinely really entertaining as a himbo and genuinely really good. And I just, I, you know, shouts to the casting department because they really went some weird, unexpected places across the board. And I think it really paid off because there are all these moments where it's like, if these were faces maybe that you were more familiar with, you would bring a preconceived notion to them. But because they're like experienced and known, but really only if you're like in your filmography theater bag, I think it leaves a sense of mystery about what's going to happen and how the action is going to unfold. Very, very much so. Yeah, 100% agree. I, I'm just remembering, you've you've mentioned Burlesque and now I just remember his his absolutely oh. mad seduction scene in that film, which is oh, one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. Where he, he basically kind of does... Love- he kind of does a strip tease and then kind of undoes it by putting on pajamas. Like it's the most, it's the weirdest scene. And I, I will never understand it. It's amazing. It's, it's so such, good. It, it truly is like, I love trash. And so I loved burlesque. But I remember I went to see it at the movies like four or five times. So I was like, fuck, yes, let's go. And I remember all the beef at the time because the song that Cher and Sia did won the Golden Globe, but didn't even get nominated for the Oscar. And she was like, how the fuck can you get, win a Golden Globe? And I, and I was like, oh, this is like the drama that keeps on giving. It's um, it's very interesting. And also there's like no world in which his character in Burlesque is straight at all. Like they have Diana <laughs> Agron come in and sort of be his away girlfriend. And I'm like, let's play the reality for what this is. Like he would be bisexual. You're breaking up a man on man relationship here with the eyeliner and the hat and the Alan Cumming vibe of it all. He was essentially like cosplaying Alan Cumming. And I was like, he wouldn't be straight. He would not be a straight man. But anyway, those are my late night thoughts. They already had one gay man get into a relationship with a woman, I guess. So they couldn't do two, I suppose. The the two she got there first and, and like, you know, declared dibs on chair. I don't know. But, One uh, fine, too cheap, too many. <laughs> um, but yes, anyway, this is not a burlesque discussion. I do want to uh, also give them props for one bit of casting. Beverly D'Angelo um, as the big bad mother of the family as so Gertrude Lightstone. Good. I mean, again, it's a Christmas movie um, tribute. She is, of course, yeah. um, you know, National Olympians Christmas Vacation, Mrs. Griswold. But um the other great um, Christmas movie, American History X, you know, like, <laughs> oh, the one we always sit around and watch every Christmas. Every Christmas. Well, one of the guests on this podcast probably does. I, I spoke to Alfred Enoch uh, a couple oh. of weeks ago and and he literally will sit around and watch the most depressing, heaviest movies over Christmas because he's like, because at that point you've got time to sit down oh. and digest it in daylight and still go about your business. I think he's such an incredible actor. I really always loved How, how to Get Away with Murder was like the one. It's the one. But um, but yeah, no, but Beverly D'Angelo, it took me a long time to recognise her because I was so distracted by her wig. Mm. It's it's a look. It's a choice. It, it, it is a choice. It wouldn't have been my choice. But there is also something very high camp about it. And this is also what I mean in the, in the casting being really intentional is like you could have filled that role with any, not anybody, but like there's a, there's a whole swag of actresses of a certain ilk and generation and talent level that you could have tapped into and utilised. And this is a big moment and a big film for them. But you choose her for a specific reason and that reason is the season. And I think that really just, like, works perfectly in the context of this. Like, it just makes so much sense. Also, this is so... I <laughs> just had, like, a... Not a... What do you call it? Um, a repressed memory. <laughs> but I was coming back... I had gone for a walk today and like, you know, it was off like doing my silly little daily exercise to feel alive. 
And I had just seen this film, like within the, you know, this past, like sort of, I don't know, 48 hours or whatever. And I was waiting to cross the road and this car, like, <laughs> came out in front of me really fast. I was like, fuck. And so I like pull back and it's an absolute bomb of a car. Like the muffler's fucking hanging off it. It's like there's borderline sparks flying. It's like full on everything you imagine about stereotypical Australia. That's what this car is. Like it could be from my Max Fury Road. And inside is a guy dressed as Santa Claus with a durry a, a cigarette in his mouth. And he's just like got the cigarette hanging out one side. And he's <laughs> it's just like, wow, that's, I can't, I was just the whole time I was smiling to myself. I was like, this is very violent night. And now that repressed memory has come full circle. And now you can <laughs> share it with your listeners who didn't want it at all. But here we are. What a perfect time to re- record then after having your own violent <laughs> night experience. Um, I think that's pretty much all we have to say about the film. But I, I think it's fair to say that we are both very much in for a violent night too, should, should one occur. Perhaps one... I don't know. I'll be honest, not in a millionaire's house would be cool because there is a tendency in Christmas movies to keep going back to millionaire's houses. I mean, even like Kevin in Home Alone. I'm sorry, that's a millionaire's house. So uh, I would quite like to see him somewhere else. Oh my God. They have so many fucking kids. So you have to be a millionaire to have that many fucking children. But also, yeah, I was thinking about the like the possibilities of setting. And I think uh, we have an Australian Christmas movie out at the moment called Christmas Ransom which is about two kids in a department store overnight. And I was thinking about, like, good settings. So I was like, a department store would be a good one. Now, the mechanics of the plot and how you get in there, tomato, tomato. But it's got to be a diehard shift. Do you know what I mean? Like, you have to pick a very specific geographical location. I feel like the diehards really lost steam once they start being like, and we're in Russia. And you're like, okay. <laughs> that's not so diehard. No. That's no. That when the fucking, you know, the dirt bikes are coming through the window at Chernobyl and you're like, wow, this franchise. But here we are. Um but yeah, I look I really enjoyed it. I wouldn't say I loved it, but it was something that was so refreshing. Like I really appreciate something new to the Christmas canon that's doing something different is really exciting. Like the last time we spoke on this podcast. I think it was about White Christmas, was it not? And Mariah Carey, I think, as well. I think, yeah, because I think we we paired them, didn't we? I mean, obviously, Mariah, you know. <laughs> we always speak about Mariah Carey. I don't even consider that a topic. That's just like the preeminent subtext at all points, right? But just adding something that's different to it, like something that's for the adults. Kids have so much. Fuck the kids. Like, let's have a movie where a guy catches on fire after being stabbed in the eye with a Christmas ornament. Interesting. Let's have a guy get spiked with an icicle. Let's have them all have like, I I just loved small touch, but like the daffiness of having them all have seasonal names was really fun to me. The Krampus guy, super weird, interesting, like malicious, fascinating, Mm. just great. Go girl, give me something else. Using a nutcracker that way. I mean, nutcracker thing. <laughs> I love to say that about a Christmas movie. I love to watch a thing and be like, wow, that was fucked. You can't really say that too many times while heading up Hallmark and Lifetime, you know what I mean? Yeah, not not too much. I mean, apart from in some of their, you know, storytelling choices. But, you know, hey-ho. So, um, by the way, Her Fierce Creatures came out earlier this year. It is now out in this country as well, because I think it wasn't when we last spoke. But, mm. um, but if anybody hasn't read your supernatural, I mean, talking about like a mixture of violence and mythology talking about you know <laughs> mixing 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 all these themes together and like having a good time when you're doing it it's a triumphant finish frankly amazing have you what have you got coming up next oh that's so nice of you to say 
I love women and I love monsters and I love like tying a whole story together and like I love an ending. <laughs> it's just really, I didn't like I'm sorry, I, you know. I there's a lot there are a few prolonged book series I read and I'll be honest with you, it is diminishing returns. I have felt that way about a lot of stories and I just feel like shit needs to end, man. Like there needs to be some kind of conclusion. And I had a really nice card get sent to me by a friend who uh, had just finished reading the series and had written all this lovely personal stuff about what the series meant to her and, and, and just like how it was nice to have a solid conclusion. And at the time there'd been the possibility to do a few more books. And I was like, no, I think, I think the story's where it's at. I think we've got to tell stories about lots of different types of women who never get to be the main characters and weave all that in together and give them all space and an arc and a narrative and shape and like, let's go out now while people still give a shit rather than, you know, 15 books down the line, shout out Laurel K. Hamilton, Anita Blake, <laughs> Vampire Hunter series. But once you get to the parrot orgy and, you know, book 15, it gets pretty Wait, tough. is that it's- still going? Are you serious? Is that still yeah, going? Yeah, it's still going. Yeah, it's oh, still going. No. I know, I know, the stamina. Um, So I have a book coming out uh in the Halloween season next year. It's called The Graveyard Shift. It's a slasher. It has always been my dream to write a slasher. I love them <laughs> so much. And so it's about a woman who runs a overnight radio show that's pop culture slash horror themed. And somebody calls up to the show um, during Halloween and she thinks they're pulling a prank, but they are actually, it turns out, have been murdered live on air. And so it begins this mystery. It's very much like Scream for the sort of uh, millennial generation, if you will. I have another book coming out in between there, as I can't talk about yet, but it will be out June-ish um, in between. I know, dun, dun, dun. And, yeah, that's it, really. Like, just those two books and some TV shows hopefully we can talk about in the next 12 months. And Yeah, you've been you've been travelling around and meeting people, so it's uh, it's looking good. It's looking <laughs> good. Um, I should also say that The Phantom Never Dies, for those who haven't, talk, uh, haven't heard it yet, is a, a podcast all about The Phantom, so the history of the comics, the books, uh, right up until the film. And it's a lot more detailed and in-depth than our chat today. I don't think you mentioned Bundaberg once there, though, so it might hurt your sponsorship chances. Well, you'd actually be surprised but there's this is the thing uh, this is the thing about the phantom and pop culture is that all links back in various different ways if the word serial killer can come from the phantom then i feel like there's a bundaberg reference in there somewhere actually here it is they filmed scenes from the phantom movie in north queensland and approximately that would be like 35 45 minutes drive from where the bundaberg factory is so there you go it all ties together. It all ties together. It does all tie together. Wait, can <laughs> I quickly like gas up your book? Because I, I don't, I can't remember if Woman vs Hollywood was out by the time we last spoke. But it is a book that I love so so much that I like bullied people at the Australian Centre for Moving Image to make sure they got it into their shop, uh, which is basically like our version of the Academy Museum, but crap. And um, yeah, it's just like it's seriously such a fucking great read and so interesting. And there were so many things like, I'm like, ah, I know so much about women in Hollywood and history. What else can I learn? But the way you weave all the stories together was so fascinating. And it just fucking rips. If you're listening to this and you haven't read it, get on that shit. Get on it. Oh, you. Oh, you. Oh, uh, you. But yeah, I also love that we have a we have a character who crosses over between our books, which is I fucking mind Well, actually, kind of too. Dorothy Arzner and Clara Bow. True, true. Yeah. Yes. Both mentioned in both. So. Which was... So exciting. So exciting. It's so cool. <laughs> but look, before this becomes more of a love-in and, and we really do end up on the cover of a Hallmark movie, 
that is it for this year's big Christmas action movie, Violent Night. Uh, thank you so much to Marie Lewis for joining me and Merry Christmas. Ah, oh, thank you so much for having me. Meli Kaliki Maka. <laughs> Well, that's it for this episode of Bar Humbug. Please join us next time for more Christmas movies madness. In the meantime, I've been your host, Helen O'Hara. This podcast is edited by Ben Williams and produced by Kobe Omanaka for Stripped Media. And if you've enjoyed the pod, please do rate us with five shiny Christmas stars wherever you listen to your podcasts. But whatever you do, happy holidays! just heard a stripped media production. 